I promise you this. If you will listen fast, I will preach fast. All right? Everybody good? All right. You, I, I will tell you, I will say this. You're probably going to feel like you've been drinking from a fire hose this morning when, when I'm done. But, but, this is the second part of freedom, and, and I, it's just, it's so rich, and it's so deep, and I just really want to, I want to do it justice today with the help of the Holy Spirit. You know, when, when you read the book of Genesis, the first story out of the Bible is God's account of creation. He, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was that forming void, and darkness hovered upon the face of the deep, or something like that. Then he goes into day one, day two, all the way through. The second story in the Bible, though, is the story of the two trees that we, that we launched last week. And the second story, as wonderful as the first story is, the second story in the Bible is what everything in the Bible hinges on. Everything in Scripture hinges on the second story in the Bible. Every decision that you make in life hinges on the second story in the Bible. Every day we make choices between the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Every single day. Genesis 2, if you're following along in, in the Bible app or in your, in your notebooks or even on your Bible, look at Genesis 2 again, 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Last week we introduced the trees and our responses to the two trees. Today we're going we're gonna to break out five truths about the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The first thing is this. The fruit of the tree is knowledge, not an apple. All right? You know, and I know as pastors and preachers, every time we're, we talk about Eve, she ate the apple and just messed everything up for all of us. Technically, that's not so. Because the Bible talks about, in the New Testament, the Bible talks about Eve being deceived. Adam's the one that messed it up for all of us. So when we get to heaven, most of us think when we get there, we're going to just take him out behind the first castle we can find. And, you know, why? I know we're not, as I said last week, because we're just going to be grateful that we got in. So let's talk about knowledge. Knowledge is this. Knowledge is information. It's data. It's ideas. It's a worldview. It's thought patterns. God did not say that it is wrong to have knowledge. As a matter of fact, what the prophet Hosea says, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. The issue is not knowledge, but the motivation behind its acquisition. Why do we desire knowledge? Why, why did Eve and Adam, why did they desire knowledge? Why? Because they wanted to be like God. Why do we desire knowledge today? I mean, we, and I'm not, I'm not knocking education. I have, I, have, I have a master's degree. I've gone through the schooling. I've done all that. I continue education all the time. I'm always going, trying to learn more. I, I like to have knowledge. But the truth of the matter is that the acquisition behind the desire for knowledge is what we have to look at. Eve wanted knowledge. Adam wanted knowledge to be like God. Why do you want knowledge? Why is it that it's important to you? As a matter of fact, in 2 Timothy 3, it talks about this, that there, there are people that are always learning, but they're never able to come to, the, to a knowledge of the truth. Always learning. Always learning more. I want to know more. I want to know more. I want to figure out the meaning of life. I'm searching for the meaning of life. I'm searching to be the smartest person I can possibly be. I'm starting to be the most intellectual person I could possibly be. Why is, what is motivating you to do that? You say, well, I'm not saying I want to be like God. But what about God of yourself? 
1 Corinthians 8, we, all, we, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. The, the, the motivation behind why we're looking to be more knowledgeable, is it so that we have enough knowledge that we know how to fix ourselves instead of trusting in God to, to bring about change and transformation in our life? If that's the case, then we're in the same boat that Adam and Eve were in. Because Colossians tells us this, that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found where? Not in higher education. I'm not knocking it. But notice this. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in who? who, who? Jesus Christ. What are we seeking? How are we seeking it? What is the motivation behind it? Number two, the second truth about fruit is that this fruit is deadly. God said to Adam, he said, you must not eat of this tree, the fruit of this tree, because if you do, you will certainly die. If we are consuming knowledge in our own personal pursuit to be a God or be, be the master of our own destiny and a master of our own faith, then that is a deadly combination. Satan tempted Eve with her desire to be like God. If you're taking notes, write this down. The desire to know is in direct opposition to the desire to trust. The desire to know is in direct opposition to the desire to trust. Who is in control of your life? Who are you looking to in controlling your life? Who are you looking to to help you with your decision-making process? Who are you looking to? Uh, are you willing to go, God, I just trust you and take your hands off of it? Or is it, I've got to figure this out? I've got to figure this out. You know, one thing that I've noticed with the rise of the internet, because believe it or not, there was a point in time in my life that the internet didn't exist. You know that? I know it's hard for some of you to realize, but I remember a time before cell phones. Actually, I remember landline party lines. I was little, a wee little lad, but I remember it. But many people can't go, they've never lived life without the internet. But here's what we do now. Someone says, you, you, you wake up in the morning, you got this pain. So what do you do? You Google it. Pain in my side. You print it all out and you read it and you go, I'm dying. I'm dying. I've got, I've got something. I can't pronounce it, but it's this long. I'm dying. You know? And you go to the doctor and you tell the doctor, I think I've got this. And he checks you out. He says, no, you just got gas. You'll be all right. You know, you'll just be all right. But when it comes to the things, we would rather gain knowledge to try to control our own lives than to trust God to take care of us. Now, Adam and Eve didn't die physically when they ate. We, see, we, read, we can read the whole story. They died spiritually, though. They were separated from God in that moment. Through Adam's disobedience, death entered the entire human race. And so now you and I, we're born spiritually dead and in need of resurrection. That's why Jesus died. That's why he went in the tomb. That's why he was resurrected the third day. We are in need of that resurrection in our life to restore relationship with God. Here's the good news. If we pursue Jesus Christ, who is the tree of life, then our desire for godliness takes place as we become more like Jesus. It's not, I want to be God of my life. It's that I want to be like Jesus, who is the Lord of my life. And if I try to be like Christ, and I, and I, and I work hard at it, and I just love Jesus with my whole heart, like we talked about last week, then the godliness happens. 
there's a, there's a passage, I don't remember where, exactly where it's at, but it talks about godliness with contentment is great gain. Adam and Eve had God, and they were created in the image of God, but they didn't have contentment. They were not content with their station in life and just being in fellowship and communion. They wanted to be like God, knowing good from evil, and so they ate. The good news, again, if we pursue Jesus, then godliness with contentment takes place as we become more like Christ. Number three, the fruit is something that has to be consumed. Eating literally means to consume or ingest. Just as eating is putting food in your mouth, ideas are ingested in our mind and sin is conceived. Stephen Covey says this, he says, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Sounds very biblical, doesn't it? Sounds like, well, you're going to see something here in just a minute. How did the first sin come about? Adam and Eve had a conversation about it. Through a conversation, they consumed an idea. They began to process the idea. And from there, the progression began to take place. The progression, this progression of Adam and Eve tells us that the sin does not begin with the act. The sin begins in our minds. The conversation that Eve had with the serpent. Did God really say? Well, he said it. But he didn't mean that. Did he? No, he didn't really mean that. Because he, he knows if you eat of this tree, if you eat the fruit of this tree, then you're going to be just like him. And you're going to know good from evil. You're going to be like God, knowing right from wrong, knowing good from evil. And then she and Adam had a conversation. You say, it doesn't say that. I said, it does too, because it says that she gave it to the man who was with her. He's listening to the conversation that's going on underneath the tree there. They have a conversation. It may have gone something like this. Hey, I think we ought to eat this thing. He goes, no, we, no, he said, no, I think we need, we need to eat this thing. And maybe she batted her eyes at him or winked at him or something. I don't know. I don't know. But at some point, Adam went, Okay. And, let, and they ate. He willfully chose knowledge over life. He willfully made the decision. It's a consumed. Remember what Stephen Covey said a while ago. Listen to this, James 1. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Enticement, desire, enticement, conception, birth, death. What did Covey say? Sow a thought, reap an action. It begins in the mind. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. It all begins in our mind. What happened with David and Bathsheba? David was supposed to have been in the battle. He wasn't. He, was, he couldn't sleep. He was hot. He comes up on top of the, the palace area. He's looking out, and he sees a, over across the street, there's a lady on top of her house. She's taking a bath, and he should have just went right back inside. And when he saw that she didn't have any clothes on, he should have turned away and went into the house and went down uh, and, into the palace basketball course and played basketball with some guys or something. He should have done something. Okay? Instead, instead, it says that David saw that she was beautiful. Even if he had just said, oh, she's a pretty lady. And went in the house. But then it says this. 
She was very beautiful. So David is there. He's looking at Bathsheba, and he's gazing. And as he gazes, his mind engages. And instead of taking the thoughts captive and getting away and running from the immorality, he he allows his thought process to follow suit. He sends for her, and the rest of the story is they have an affair. She conceives. He's trying to to cover it all up, so he brings her husband back, and, and to hopefully he will sleep with his wife. He's been on the battlefield. He comes home, he wants to go to bed with his wife. He doesn't do that. He's a man of character. Two nights in a row, David finally says, okay, this guy is not going to go to bed with his wife, so I can't make the math work, so I'm going to have him killed. And he, and he murders him. Has he murdered? Mary's Bathsheba to cover it all up, so on and so forth. What I'm saying is this. When we consume the fruit of knowledge and allow it to rattle around between our ears and our minds and thoughts, it births stuff. Every sin that you and I have ever committed starts in here. It begins in our mind. The fourth truth about the fruit is that the fruit causes separation. Genesis 3, 8 says, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. God didn't, run, God didn't hide from them. God didn't turn his back. A lot of people said, oh, God turned his back on Adam and Eve because he couldn't gaze on sin. No, that is not true. God came into the garden after they had sinned, began calling for them, looking for them. They had hid themselves. They, were, they had went and got fig leaves and covered up their private parts and everything else. And then when God finally got close to them, they couldn't hide anymore. And they said, hey, I'm right here. And he said, well, we were naked and we, we, we were ashamed. He goes, well, who told you you were naked? The shame that had entered into that moment, they hid themselves from God. They sinned. Their eyes were open. They covered up. They hid because they were ashamed and afraid of God's reaction toward them. How often do we have that same thing going in our life? We make a mistake. We sin. We do something that that we shouldn't do, and we're afraid of it, and we're ashamed of it. We're afraid of what people are going to say. We're ashamed of what God's going to say, and so we try to hide it and try to cover it up. Here's the deal. You and I do just what Adam and Eve did, and that is they misjudged how God would respond to their sin. They misjudged how God was going to respond. God wasn't in the garden watching from behind a tree, waiting on them to fail so he could just smack them with a lightning bolt. God searched for them, walking through the garden, calling out to them, where are you? Because he loved them. He loved them. And this is for somebody in this house this morning. God is not watching and waiting, anticipating your or my failure. That's not what God's about. God is hedging his bet that you're going to make it. God sent his son to die on the cross to forgive you of all of your sin, past, present, and future, so you would make it. Not so that you would fail. He is not sitting on the throne in heaven. He is not hiding around the corner with binoculars on you, just waiting on you to slip up and fail. That is not who God is because God loves you. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. 1 Peter 4, 8, love covers what? A multitude of sins. God's heart for you and I is this. When we sin, that we run to him, not hide from him. That's God's heart. You say, well, how do I know that's true? Well, Romans 8, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, angels, nor demon, present, nor the future, nor any powers, height, nor depth, anything else in all creation 
anything else, including my failures. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Someone needs to say amen right there. All right, number five. The fifth truth. The tree of knowledge of good and evil produces shame and victimization. We just saw it. It robs us of innocence. It robs us of innocence. Some of you have been around here a long time. You know my story. You know how when I was 10 years old, uh, I went and uh, we had some woods across the street from our house. And down at the end of our street, there was a bunch of boys down that lived down there, brothers. I think there's like five of those guys. And they were all older than us. And they had built a fort out in the woods. And so one day we were all out there in the woods. We were messed. They were gone probably to school or somewhere else. And, and we went out and got in their fort. And I just walked up and I kicked a milk crate. Not the plastic kind. This is a wooden one. Because it's a while ago. I kicked it over. And underneath there was a stack of pornographic magazines. And being 10, what's this? You pick it up. And from the time I was 10 years old until I was 24, 25 years old, pornography consumed my life. It took me to places internally in my mind and in my heart, some of the darkest places you could ever want to go. But the thing that it did in an instant when I opened that first magazine was it took my innocence away. I was 10 years old, but I was no longer a little boy. It changed everything. I'm, I, I've looked back at those times. I've looked back at that 14, 15 years of my life, and, and, I, and it changed everything. It changed my relationship with my parents. It changed my relationship with my friends. I was consumed. I went back every day, every day, every single solitary day, until one day I went out there, and everything had caught on fire and burned it all up. So then what did I do? I had to find other avenues this was before video, this was before cell phones, this was before anything like that. You had, to, you had to go find a magazine. Or you had to go to a video store and buy or rent something like that. And being 12, 13 years old, I had no way of doing that. So we would steal magazines from the, from the gas station at the corner. Every day, Every day, innocence lost, changed every relationship in my life, affected relationships, including my own marriage, for a decade after Kim and I were married. Because of where it took me, and my innocence gone, because of where it took me mentally and emotionally, I was a mess. Nobody knew it because you couldn't talk about it. You couldn't talk about it. You couldn't go to your dad and go, Dad, I'm, you know, I got this problem. You couldn't go to your best friends because they were there looking at them with you. You couldn't go to your preacher because, son, you're going to bust hell wide open. I knew that. I didn't need to be told that. But I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop. Innocence lost. I was no longer a little boy. Listen to me, moms and dads in this house. And maybe for some grandmas and grandpas in this house that are raising your children as sons and daughters. I don't believe that we shelter our kids. I don't believe in that. But we've got to protect their innocence. And I'm not, I'm not so legalistic as to say that it's not cute when little boys and little girls that are three, four, five, six years old are hugging each other and running around holding each other's hands and all that kind of stuff. But the wisest man in the world said this in his book. 
He said, do not let the fires of passion be lit too young. Be careful. Be careful what your children are seeing, what your children are watching, because I'm telling you, in an instant, innocence is lost. And shame comes in at a level that is unbelievable. When shame enters, distance happens because we pull away. Shame causes us to do all sorts of things that keep us from connecting with God. Shame makes us want to hide. Adam and Eve realize their nakedness. They were shamed and they hid. All right, let's kick it into third gear or fourth gear or overdrive or whatever. We got just a second here. What are some results of shame? Covering up with religion and becoming focused on work. If I perform well enough, if I don't look at porn today, then I performed okay today. And if I can do this for a week, then maybe God will be pleased with me and maybe I'll squeak through the gates. If I perform well enough, I will be okay. Number two, lying, deception, and false pride. Number three, making promises we can't keep. God, I'll never do that again. Don't make those promises. It's like New Year's resolutions. Don't do that. All you're doing is setting yourself up for guilt and shame and condemnation in your life. Don't make promises you can't keep. If you're an addict this morning, if you've got an addictive personality, own that thing. And recognize that this, what I did, has caused this in my life. This is what shame does. This is what guilt and shame does in my life. So we make promises we can't keep. Getting our self-worth from the things that we do. Number five, inability to come to a place of honesty with God, which is kind of weird because you can't be dishonest with God because he knows everything anyway. So really it's more about become, coming to an inability to come to a place of honesty with God ourselves because we believe we have no true value. And the sixth result of shame is that we concentrate on our sin instead of our Savior. See, that's the problem with legalists down through the years. We've concentrated on the sin so much. And I have had people, I've had individuals that go to this church, look at me and say, Pastor, you don't preach on hell enough. You don't deal with sin enough. Because sin is not what brings us to repentance. Hell is not what scares us into repentance. The writer said it's the goodness of God that brings us to repentance. If we focus on Jesus, then the desired result happens naturally. Okay? Everybody okay this morning? All right, here we go. The difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is about what we've done, the act. But when shame enters, it's about who we are. Guilt is about what we've done. Shame is about who we are. With guilt, we can always get a fresh start, but with shame, we're caught in this noose, and the more we move, the tighter it gets around our neck because the problem stays with us. In shame, we are the problem. So it's like this. The act, shame enters. We feel guilty, so shame enters. We become a victim, and from victimization, we begin to blame. Adam blamed Eve. He excused his actions by focusing on the actions of his wife, and actually, he blamed God. Because when God, who told you were naked? Well, you know, she, but you gave her to me. So really and truly, God, I ate because you gave me a wife and it's your fault. So he began to blame God. He blamed Eve, he blamed God, all this kind of stuff. Victimization is when we blame or we excuse our internal condition or difficult outward circumstances by focusing on the actions of another person. Listen to me. This is a hard saying this morning, but I've got to say this. 
I don't care what's been done to you in your life. Where you are today is your own fault. Oh, but you don't know the hell I, I was abused. I was molested. I, was, I get it, okay? I understand that, but you need to recognize something. That happened then. What's going on in you now? Own it. Own it. Don't blame your life now on what happened to you in your past. Take responsibility for your actions. Do what God did, said to, the, to, the, to Job, and that is, Job, put on your big boy pants, grow up, take responsibility for your life, and serve God with all your diligence. That's hard at 9 o'clock in the morning. I get it. But we can't blame our circumstances on other people and other situations. The results of victimization, we notice other sins, but not our own. We excuse, number two, or, or condemn ourselves saying, I've just always been this way. I'll never change. I'll never be good enough. And number three, we feel rejected. You see, with shame, we're either the Pharisee or the woman caught in adultery. We're either the person that says, you're not good enough, or the person that says, I'm not good enough. I'm not diminishing your pain. I'm not diminishing the pain of your life and the pain of your past, not one little bit. But I am telling you that your past only defines you if you want it to. And your past does not dictate your future. Let's stand all over the room. We have to get to the point, guys. We have to get to the point where no matter what happens, we take responsibility for our own lives. We can no longer blame anyone else for the quality of our relationship with God. We cannot blame someone else for the quality of our personal relationship with God. It's on us. Well, I'm just trying to understand what happened to me. What is that? That's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil lacks the power to transform your life. It can give you facts, it can give you data, and it can give you information. But how is your life transformed? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Don't be conformed, Paul said to the church at Rome, to the patterns of this world, to the thought processes, to this worldview, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. Take responsibility for where you are. Don't let shame and victimization and blame be the lid in your life. Let it go and begin to walk toward freedom. To be free from shame, we must begin to see ourselves the way God sees us. And how is that? Forgiven and clean. Yeah, but this happened. Jesus, God looks at the ledger book. He pulls it up on the computer screen, calls your name out, looks at it, pulls your, your picture. He looks at your account. There's no balance. Because all he sees is his son's blood. That's all he sees. Yeah, but I did this. He goes, I have no record of that. As a matter of fact, I have no record of anything since you asked Jesus to become the Lord of your life. Every sin that you've ever committed, every sin that you're committing right now, and every sin that you're going to commit tomorrow and in your future is already forgiven by the blood of Jesus.
That's how God sees us. Forgiven and clean. Amen? That's good news, guys. Bow your heads with me all over the room.